Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mirror Media Podcast. Uh, today, we are joined with Professor Bumsi Juluri, who is a professor of, I think, media and arts in, in San Francisco, correct? Media studies, yeah. Media studies, uh, okay. And, um, and, and you're the author of actually multiple books. I think multiple genres you've actually covered. You've covered, you've uh, done a, a book called uh, Rearming Hinduism and Cracked uh, uh, Across the World. Um, and also, he also has done fiction work with his recent Kishkinda series, writing about uh, the first book, which I read um, was Saraswati's Intelligence, which I really thoroughly enjoyed, um, was about like Hanuman and uh, kind of taking the, Mahab the Ramayana to prehistory of some sort uh it, it it felt very like like it's part of human evolution and so so uh professor jaluri is well well versed and well adept in a variety of different writing styles and uh interests so um so today actually we're joined by not only professor jewelry but uh my colleague uh Ratchet. um so Ratchet, say hi hey everyone uh, good to see you again so uh professor uh could you uh, give us a, a brief, I mean, brief or however long you want on your background and what, how you got into media studies um, and, and, and like kind of like where you grew up and, and what, and I'm, I'm just playing it out saying you came to America at some point and how that happened. Yeah, yes, I, I, it's an apt, I guess, to begin with uh, how I came to America because uh, uh, you know, it's a land of uh, not only dreams, but uh, uh, you know, uh, re renewal, I suppose, where you uh, find it meaningful, especially during the summer holiday months. Okay, reflect <laughs> on, uh, you know, why you came here and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the end of the semester, sometimes you have that slight few, was it worth it kind of thing. But then uh, suddenly somehow again, you feel restored and you think of all the good times you had in class and the nice right. papers you and you know the friends you meet uh, uh, like yourself and the chance to be on forums like this and say hey this conversation you know uh, is getting more and more global and diverse and interesting so yes i'll begin briefly with my how i came to america story uh, uh, so i was born and i i grew up in hyderabad in southern india my parents and i uh, are telugu Mm -hmm. And um, it's very interesting that my American dream got seeded when I was very, uh, very young, probably like hardly, you know, 10 years old. Right. Uh, because, you know, like many kids in India at the time, I grew up reading American books and comics and movies and everything. And I think my childhood in Hyderabad was a very interesting mix of an Indian village, you know, like the elders and grandparents, my mom being in movies and politics at the time there were a lot of fascinating people who would come from the villages sure. so there was a kind of a atmosphere i grew up in and at the same time there was this american dream right at the heart of it and uh, it sort of uh, uh, reached a very important culmination when australia is old and i came to visit america with my mother mm -hmm. and we were we did road trips all up the east coast from california to grand canyon and i think those three or four months made a very strong and vivid impression on me. And uh, I remember visiting the Hare Krishna temple in Berkeley. Uh, and of course, 20 years later, I end up, you know, in the same town, more or yeah. less. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I had a little bit of a childhood fascination with America. Then 
but after I, you know, returned after my childhood holiday for several years, I kind of slowly um, lost. I mean, I didn't really actively pursue this idea that I needed to come to the U.S. And how that happened, and it also explains my career path in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time I came to high school, my parents wanted me to study engineering, like most parents in India. Right. And after I finished my twelfth, uh, I went to study engineering in Bangalore, uh, though my heart was not really in it. And I could see that I was reasonably good at writing, uh, engineering, math. I was not all that good, but anyway, I had too much proud to tell my parents, you know, that I couldn't do it. So I said, "What's the big deal?" And I went to Bangalore. And then I quit after two years. I simply could not uh, handle engineering. And then I, you know, just began to write and read and uh, what you know, think about the meaning of life and that sort of stuff. And you know, worry my parents. Yeah. Uh, but e eventually, I managed to, uh, you know, sort of get my uh, path back straight again by studying journalism at IMT in Delhi. And that's when I kind of realized that. Uh, uh, there was this new field emerging, at least in India, uh, you know, mass communication or media studies. And, and I thought it was very interesting to study the media and to study popular culture. And, uh, and then I sort of uh, resumed my childhood uh, adventure and longing for the American dream and ended up coming here. I studied in the Midwest and also in, in uh, uh, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where I did my PhD. Um, and then I taught for a couple of years in New England. And then in 2001, uh, I came to USF. And uh, that was a, you know, a, a very uh, happy uh, place to come to because I, when I was in India, I grew up listening to the, you know, 60s music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to actually land up like two, three blocks away from Haight-Ashbury, uh, <laughs> you know, it was really nice. And yeah, so I've been teaching at USF. I teach classes on <clears throat> a whole uh, range of uh, media studies topics, um, you know, like, uh, well, Indian cinema, Bollywood, that's a popular yeah. topic. Um, then I also used to teach a class called Media Stereotyping and Violence. And that was a class that just sort of made me teach when I joined because I was a new guy. Right. Uh, then, you know, the horrible events of 9-11 happened. And so that time, you know, I started reading Gandhian philosophy and nonviolence. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of how this whole uh, journey started, both coming to uh, media studies from engineering and also sort of making this home in America. Sure. So when, when you when you went to journalism in Delhi and um, and then decided to do your master's and, and come to the U.S., was was your at that time, were you trying to become a journalist or were you trying to do more of like um actually get into the, the the phd program and do more of like the scholarly academic work what were you kind of uh what was your like i guess goal at that point a hey, great great question so when, when i you know started studying in imc i think i just wanted to be a journalist and a writer yeah because i did not really have a, a conception at that time uh that you know one could study the media or you know i didn't have a very clear understanding of what the social sciences were Right. Uh, I just knew that I liked writing, and uh, so I thought, you know, I had a very, you know, nuts and bolts, uh, technocratic uh, understanding, I think, of what education meant, you know. So when I started in IMC, uh, 
I, I just thought, you know, I would complete my studies and probably become a journalist and live in Delhi. And, yeah. um, you know, it, was, it wasn't very well thought out. Uh, but somewhere along the way, and I should actually give full credit to, I guess, the Indian government and IMC because they had a decent library. Mm-hmm. And in the library, they had all these journals uh, like Media, Culture and Society and some of these books uh, about media and culture. And once I started reading those, I, I suddenly uh, found happiness in a manner of speaking. You know, and I just thought that you know I would actually like to be somebody who uh, researches the media, talks about media, you know, and and uh, uh, because I could also see, and this is a very important context, um, 91, 92 uh, was was the time that India opened up the economy of economic liberalization. And that was also the time Star TV began. And, you know, the changes in Indian everyday life and, you know, the very rapid way in which satellite TV sort of changed the landscape uh, and then the Gulf War, CNN, you know, uh, sure. all these things were rapidly. Um, so I somehow uh, finally had a aha moment and I thought, okay, I could spend my life, uh, you know, talking about what the is all about and what it's doing to people. So, I mean, it's actually interesting. I mean, I feel like that early 90s period globally was actually like this true explosion of understanding the true power of media. I, for some reason, like this is right around the time where Fox News started coming up and and you had this. And the, it, no longer was it just like in India. I think before it was just like Doordarshan. That was kind of like what a few channels here and there. And suddenly after the 90s, there was this massive growth of and not just in India, but I think globally of the media houses and channels and and different perspectives and how to like how media has such a powerful influence on human beings at a, at a somewhat visceral level. And I think that the early '90s period. So I, I think it was probably like the the iron was hot and you kind of just struck at that point. <laughs> yeah, very 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 true. I mean, uh, you know, for once I think. Uh, and I mean, again, you know, as somebody who had who had dropped out of engineering, yeah, uh, it was a scary thing. Now, when I think about it, uh, which is why probably I'm usually very empathetic to my students, you know, because I do have this memory of how stressful undergrad life can be, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you know, for a while, I wasn't even sure whether I was I would turn out to be good at this or whether I'd stick to this. Right. Uh, somehow, I was fortunate. Uh, you know, especially once I got into my PhD program um, and I started reading, you know, British cultural studies, um, you know, I suddenly, I think it was like a moment when I suddenly realized how little I knew. And, yeah. and I said, wow, there is so much to study, so much to learn. And um, yeah, and like you said, I think the 90s were a very, very interesting time because, you know, um, it was almost like an overnight explosion in media culture. Yeah. And and um, yeah, so it was a good, good moment to be studying all of that. So, I mean, before you started in the past few years, you've gotten very um, focused on in the, the, the Hindu uh, and, and media presence. Before that period, you know, you're teaching for numerous years. What was your expertise? Were you more like American pop culture? Were you more Indian like general pop culture or? Um, I, I mean, what area did you kind of focus on before you got into particularly the Hindu side? Yeah, that's actually uh, a, a very interesting set of uh, journeys which sort of brought me to this present uh, kind of writing that I'm doing uh, yeah. mainly on Hinduism and also on Hindu phobia. 
um, in, in the 90s, so my uh, focus was mo mostly on globalization, you know, because and satellite TV and, you know, the changes that are taking place uh, on a worldwide scale. And my PhD dissertation was on a very interesting topic, which was MTV in India. Interesting. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there was actually a channel called uh, Channel V. Uh, I remember. Yeah, you remember Channel V. And, you know, so mid-90s, um, you know, all across Asia, Channel V was very popular. And then um, MTV India also came along. And um, I was very interested in doing audience research because in the field of media studies, you know, there were two broad views. I guess one was the sort of Marxist traditional view, which said that this is all cultural imperialism and, you know, uh, global media is destroying local cultures. And then there were more selectively view, you know, on the other side. Um, but when I did audience research, I, you know, I think started to think in a much more nuanced way about uh, how, on the one hand, audiences have agency, they do interpret media in very, very complex ways. Um, and you can really understand the meanings that they're bringing to the media. Uh, but at the same time, issues of, you know, power do remain. And so my first book uh, was basically uh, a study of uh, music TV reception in India. Uh, and then uh, I think the, the other things I, um, other topic I got really interested in, especially just after I came to San Francisco, uh, was this whole debate on media and violence. Uh, because, you know, I was given the class to teach. And then when 9-11 happened, you know, there was this whole Fox News, um, you know, flashing red light warnings about terrorism. Um, and, and WMDs and so there was a sense of fear in the US at that time and all these uh, debates on whether human nature is violent or whether religion is violent mm -hmm. and uh, at that time I think I kind of had a, um, a second beginning in terms of a new intellectual direction yeah uh, and, and again it was just I was very fortunate to be in the barrier because you know I, I had no idea till then that there was so much of uh, applicability or relevance in Indian thought to contemporary global social problems, you know, particularly the question of violence. Yeah. So I remember reading, um, you know, quite a lot about Gandhi and uh, trying to understand the whole critique of nonviolence. Um, and I think somewhere, you know, in that time period, in the early 2000s, um, on the one hand, I started getting fascinated by the depth of uh, I guess India thought, I mean, even through this little uh, toehold that got into it via Gandhi and yeah. I think colonial theory. And at the same time, I started to notice that almost every time there was something about India generally or Hinduism particularly in the media, um, it was highly inaccurate and it was sometimes very, very hateful and spiteful. And what surprised me was the fact that here I was teaching in this uh, field uh, of critical cultural studies, you know, where in almost all media studies classes, we are talking about representation. Right? We are fighting um, the misrepresentation of women, we're fighting representation of Muslims, we're talking about Islamophobia, uh, misogyny, all these things. And then I suddenly started to notice that nobody was talking about 
about, uh, at least in academia, nobody was talking about how India and Hindus and Hinduism have been misrepresented. You know, at best, there were token references to uh, Mother India or Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I just wondered why uh, we weren't talking about this. And then I noticed that there was obviously this whole other direction that uh, South Asia studies uh, and area studies had gone on, where, uh, to put it in very simple terms, it was almost like Hinduism is sort of the villain on par with, you know, white supremacism, etc., etc. And I found that bewildering because, you know, for me, I, you know, like for most of us, you know, the color line is a very big part of our lives in the U.S. Right. Uh, if you have some relative privileges, you know, being middle class or educated or whatever, um, you know, the color line is a reality. And so I was really shocked to find the amount of racism in academia and the media that was freely operating the moment it came to the word Hindu. So, uh, yeah, so and then, yeah. Can I ask on this? So I have a couple questions because I, I think I, I kind of want to open it up because I think this is really interesting, right? So when did you start? So when did this, I mean, I, I, maybe it's a light bulb or maybe it was something that was just kind of growing within your your mind as you're teaching and, and you know, doing your studies. But when did you suddenly start noticing the the way the media interacted with Hinduism? Was it something that, that was always there or was it something that, that suddenly started picking up on? And and actually, I have a couple questions here. Um, I mean, I, obviously your background is Hindu. And, and were you like a... I mean, were you religious beforehand, and was that part of where your your consciousness about the media and Hinduism came in, or was it something that kind of just crept up on you? Wonderful question. Uh, let, let's. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, when did I start noticing uh, that there was perhaps such a thing as anti-Hindu racism, and you know, my own sort of. Uh, identification or empathy yeah. as being Hindu. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. I did not particularly think of a Hindu identity as such. Um, you know, I mean, I was not very quote-unquote religious or anything like that when I came to the U.S. Uh, I mean, obviously, I came from a fairly traditional, devout, orthodox family. Uh, but when I came to the U.S., I think, you know, my, I mean, I was not an atheist or um, anything like that. I mean, I kind of believed in God and occasionally, you know, I would, you know, just uh, think of Ganesha or Saraswati. <laughs> and also, I, you know, uh, at that time, uh, well, at that time and ever since, my parents and I became devotees of Sri Satya Sai Baba. So in the 90s, uh, you know, his presence was also there in my life in the sense yeah. that, um, um, you know, I... I you know, thought of him as a guru and as, as divinity incarnate and everything. Sure. But for a very long time, you know, it, it was kind of very uh, uh, complicated in the sense that I just thought of him and, and religion generally as a small compartment in my mind, you know, where I would kind of just make my, you know, private deals with God so that, you know, I would do well on the SAT or I'll get my visa, you know, that the, this simple everyday stuff. But otherwise, I thought of myself as, you know, just being a modern, global, you know, cosmopolitan person, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the first time that started to change a little bit was in the late 90s when I was doing my PhD. 
because uh, uh, on the one hand, I was reading, you know, Stuart Hall and Foucault and Edward Said and all this amazing literature field. Um, but at the same time, I also started reading uh, Baba's discourses much more seriously. And uh, and this was actually, I mean, it, it sounds trite to say it now, but thanks to the internet. Uh, I remember mid-90s, this new browser came called Netscape. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had no idea how to get it connected to the world, but eventually some friends helped me. And then suddenly I used to, I realized there was this website, satyasai.org, and they had uh, a lot of Baba's writings online. So I went through this very few years where the one reading, you know, essentially, you know, Marxist uh, cultural studies, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, also reading Baba talking about uh, materiality and accountability and all these things in a very, in, a, in his own way, you know, the kind of the native indigenous grassroots Indian way, I guess. You know. um, and, you know, I found it very fascinating, you know, that um, all these things, in a sense, were talking about similar things, making a better world, for lack of a better sure. word, you know, making a better place, helping human beings. So, uh, so I somehow, I think in my mind, reconciled the critical project of academia and Hinduism, uh, at least the way, you know, Baba was, you know, embodying it uh, in my own way. Uh, but even at that time, I didn't really start uh, thinking about Hindu misrepresentation as a serious problem. Uh, I did notice a few things in the late 90s, and I think since you know all, all three of us and perhaps your uh, you know viewers also can relate to this time period. Uh, late 90s, if you remember, on music television here in the U.S., there was quite a lot of Hindu imagery that started. Um, you know, there was of course no doubt a little later when Stefani was in the um, and uh, Madonna. Madonna, yeah. Um, yeah. Eros had that uh, Krishna cover with the cat's head. Right. Um, so I think basically it was sort of the transition from the old hippie culture to the new, you know, Mac yoga culture that we are inundated, inundated with today. Yeah. And I was very intrigued by that. On the one hand, I mean, I didn't have any feelings of hostility initially because after all, you know, I love the Beatles and George Harrison and um, you know, I, I thought of, you know, Western Hinduism as a, you know, uh, nice space as well. Uh, but then increasingly, I could also see that it wasn't just uh, a few Westerners, you know, borrowing, you know, in a friendly fashion, but there was uh, more and more appropriation taking place. And then there was also this sort of deliberate, uh, almost agenda-based, um, you know, misrepresentation going on. Mm -hmm. And I think I started to notice it and I began to write about it at least in a big way um, around 2005 or 2005. Um, and that was when uh, this whole California textbook issue right. sort of broke out in the news. Um, so uh, yeah, I, read, I remember reading about it in two or three newspapers. Um, and, you know, at first I, I still had such a you know, elementary understanding of what was going on because I, I looked at the papers and I had this vague image in my mind, these really stern old Indian uncle, you know, uh, going going to Sacramento and uh, scolding, you know, these smart professors uh, <laughs> and telling them 
what you are telling ram ram lalla was born 30 million years ago you know some, <laughs> i mean i just stupid image because you know you all see this we see this in the diaspora right you yeah turns stodgy old uncles that's uh, right and, and and so that that you know and i said oh man you know it was almost like what are these guys doing but then again thanks to internet you know i all these other articles were coming out i think like by vishal agrawal and others and i started to see what was actually in the textbooks mm-hmm. and at the time of course you know i wasn't a parent so i mean it, school issues weren't really my thing sure but started reading more and more about this i suddenly realized that if these textbooks were be this bad and if academia was resisting changing them so badly then something was seriously wrong sure you know, and i sort of decided to be you know whistleblower and i wrote an op-ed which was published in the san francisco chronicle uh, right opposite with sullen tapper's piece and uh, so that's when my you know present engagement you know with the misrepresentation began okay excellent um rajit i think you had some questions Oh, absolutely. But I mean, thank you for that great introduction, Mukunda. I think you really elicited a lot of the things I wanted to touch upon. Uh, Professor, I, I guess let me pick up something that, you know, we haven't considered right now. So I love the perspective from which you speak, because most of the other scholars that we've read and speak to, you know, talk from the Indological uh, perspective or from a religious studies perspective. However, there's very few people like you, and I think you're the most prominent one who's actually picking up this question of, representation of hinduism and indic culture in general in the media could you sort of you know sort of compare and contrast that you know your paradigm what what does this perspective uh, bring to us you know to the conversation right uh, what value is it bringing us and you know why is this uh, an important piece of the puzzle in my view and in fact i think one of the, the most important piece of the puzzle because most other uh, academic writing is sort of stuck so stuck in the ivory tower but i think what you're doing is bridging that gap between academics and a wider audience and i think this is what you even talk about in your book rearming hinduism that hey you know it's not quite an academic tome you know you're you kind of gets academic at times but what you're trying to do is really bridge that gap and you know bring it to light that it you know these are the mis uh sort of misrepresentation that goes on in academia and how we might benefit as a culture by addressing it so could you talk a little bit upon that yeah thank you i mean you know the last few years after i wrote riyaming hinduism and you know i began to read more about uh, i mean the new indologists uh, for lack of a better word uh, you know i just realized how little i know and i think in academia that's the best thing that can happen to you uh, right. every suddenly realize wow i know so little and because then after that you really start to value the knowledge you know that's out there so uh, but yeah i think you know luckily i you know often had the clarity both you know the sense of being awed by you know these massive historians you know like whether sita ram goel or dharampal or more recently you know conrad uh, elst and um, uh, you know vishwad luri um, you know uh, balgangadhar and many other you know independent scholars and others now, on the one hand i do get awed by you know their fantastic knowledge and uh, but at the same time uh, i also realize that you know for whatever reason starting with my dropping out of engineering or maybe coming to america when i was 12 years old and seeing hari krishna temple in berkeley and ending up back there um, all these things suddenly make me realize that uh, there's there is this sort of a a space you know uh, right. a 
a space in the culture which I seem to have ended up uh, understanding fairly, um, you know, uh, clearly, and that is, you know, the sort of media, pop culture, everyday life things. And it seems to be very handy right now in talking about because uh, one, I think, the absence of any vast centralized, you know, organizational apparatus for Hinduism, you know, uh, nothing like the church. Uh, or uh, the way it is for quote-unquote organized religions, um, the everyday space is really where what we call Hinduism, you know, keeps playing out. And, you know, um, and popular culture is a very big part of it. Uh, for example, I think many of our generation's ideas about Hinduism, you know, particularly in India, uh, you know, uh, came from Amar Chitra Kala. Yeah, yep, absolutely. I mean, that was an amazing universe. So, now, when I see people debating about Amarchitrakada causing fascism and stuff like that, you know, I mean, I'm so amused because in the early 70s, when you were growing up in essentially a quasi-socialist India, uh, the emergency was going on. I mean, twice a month, you would see Krishna or you would see, you know, the Bhakti saints and you will see a better world. You know, it wasn't just golden age nostalgia for the past. It was the liberalism of these stories, you know, uh, that appeal to us in, in that particular generation, you know. So I think like Amarachitra, like the mythological movies, um, you know, pop culture has been a very living uh, source of our ideas of Hinduism for us. Um, and then the other, I think, interesting thing that's, uh, you know, becoming relevant is the fact that the media itself has become more uh, colonizing and total totalitarian that's nature right in the 70s um you know you just had movies and comics and maybe doordarshan uh, by the 90s you had satellite tv 24 7 and now we have the phone you know can't live with it or without it uh, <laughs> and i mean the way people are getting inundated and overwhelmed with these very calculated messages um you know which are demonizing a whole group of people, a people of color, a post-colonial people, um, you know, th that has turned into, a, I think, a, some, something like a burning uh, problem, at least in the uh, So what I've been trying to do, I mean, rearming sort of a, a very strange multi-genre experiment. I mean, I wrote it in just three or four weeks. You know, partly it was critique, uh, partly it was just like a song from the heart, a song of pain and hope. Um, but since then, I think, you know, what I'm realizing more and more is the need for a systematic study of Hindu misrepresentation in the media. And, um, you know, so next spring, I'm uh, most likely going to be teaching a senior seminar um, on how Hindus are depicted in the media. And, um, you know, so usually when I'm able to teach something in a class, that also helps me uh, with my writing and, you know, putting a book together. Uh, but I think, yes, you know, whether it's resisting propaganda, um, call it genocidal, uh, proto-genocidal propaganda, uh, in terms of resisting that, and in terms of uh, self-representation. Um, I mean, Hinduism is so much about the art, the beauty of sculpture, of storytelling, of song. Um, you know, so in both ways, it seems like, you know, we are going through the, uh, the media yuga or media sub-yuga. <laughs> In, in, in Sanatana Dharma. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to be, you know. Uh...
Roger, you got follow up? Uh, no, nothing. You can go ahead. Thank you so much. So, um, Professor, so I, I think uh, you started touching on a few points, and I think I, I kind of want to press this is, okay, so both the West and, I, guess, I mean, say Western media generally just speaking like America and Europe and whatever, and then in some part the English-speaking Indian media, right, is it has a certain very, a very unique view of what Hinduism and, 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 and Hindus mean, right? Like, for example, like from the past few years, there's been this long conversation about is yoga hindu or is it something else or or and anytime they talk about hinduism or any of the branches that touch upon it there's always negative change like anything you want to assign that's good for example yoga oh maybe it's not hindu anything that ends up being bad like caste oh that has to be that's the core of hinduism where where do you see that play out and can you describe like why you think it plays out the way it does and and how it does play out in both the Western media and kind of like English speaking Indian media? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, again, you know, when I first started to notice this, it was utterly mystifying to me. Yeah. That essentially, you know, when, when, when I look at Hindu people, especially here in, in, in the US, uh, sure, there are a few doctors and, you know, engineers who are wealthy, but most Hindus are, you know, middle class or working class, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we've all gone through challenges, you know, on the color line, on the class line. And yet I somehow found it very strange that academic, academics, particularly from the South Asian community, suddenly decided that, you know, Hinduism was sort of like, Hinduism was sort of like whiteness. You know, it was a, a dominant construct. And, uh, you know, I remember the 90s, one of the most influential book books in South Asia studies, South Asian American studies was... Uh, um, the Karma of Brown Folks by, you know, Vijay Prashad. And, you know, it's almost like a Bible, I think, for many young scholars. And I can understand the kind of meaning and hope it gave to many young South Asian youth in the U.S. at that time. But when you read that carefully, you find, you know, uh, he starts with a discussion of anti-immigration ra racism in the U.S. in the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, Catherine Mayo, all that. And then by the time it comes to the 70s, Suddenly, you know, he switches tracks and the problem becomes what he calls Yankee Hindutva, you know, and he just talks talks about that and for the rest of the book. And uh, even in his later book, Uncle Swami, uh, you know, there's this whole post 9-11, you know, Islamophobia is talking about. And there too, again, you know, there's just like this passing reference about the textbook issue and things like that. For the most part, again, what we see happening inside academia is this construction that Hinduism is innately oppressive, dominant, etc., and it's full of contradictions. And I remember when the 2016, uh, you know, issue uh, played out again. The mm -hmm. entire paradigm in academia today, the dominant paradigm, uh, came forth in the form of a, a letter. Uh, that letter, you know, basically summarized how academia is thinking about Hinduism today. You know, one, there is no such thing as Hinduism. And by implication, if you call yourself Hindu, you're this, you're something called a Hindu nationalist, you hate Muslims, you worship Hitler. You know, there's like a whole package of positions that are attributed to you. And then at the same time, even though there, there is supposedly no Hinduism, you know, the caste system is Hinduism and it's innately patriarchal, oppressive, etc. Now, the weird thing I think over here, what has happened is this is essentially a colonial 
imagination that that is you know playing out over here i mean this is more or less what you know the the white people who were ruling india you know 100 150 years ago were thinking and you know the, the reason i think it's been uh, so persistent is because academics and then by extension uh, people in the media uh, have not challenged it you know the way in this every community challenged the dominant paradigm um, in India, the intellectual elite uh, in the media and academia and so on, um, you know, just got absorbed into the dominant paradigm. And they sort of made this sort of a semi straw man figure, you know, like Hindutva uh, to kind of become the dominant concern. You know, I mean, I, I can understand the contextual critique uh, of politics in India there, uh, but that's not what is going on. It's wholesale uh, demonization of Hinduism. So one of the changes I, I want to actually highlight, uh, I would say till, you know, the, the US media story on Hinduism was always, you know, pretty black and white and bad, you know, so you can say Catherine Mayo's Mother India in the 20s, which as leaders of 50s, you know, um, surveys found was the single most influential book on India in the US. Okay. And that was like outright xenophobic, eugenics, crazy. Nazi style stuff, you know, I mean, she's saying Hindus stink, you know, and Hindus are, you know, festering sources of disease and are a weaker race and are genetic, you know, uh, you know, whatever, genetic uh, uh, um, detritus, you know. So, I mean, it's an outright racist book. But, you know, the similar ideas in Mother India are still being played out to this day. Now, in the West, I think it was a very quick, seamless transition because, you know, as you know, Stuart Hall and Edward Said have told us, you know, the way racism operates in the media is simply through, you know, what Said calls, you know, a restorative citation of antecedent authority, or all puts it more simply, he says, you know, the old racist movies keep getting made again and again. Yeah. So you have the old Catherine Mayo, colonial, essentially Christian, religious supremacist, racist vision of Hindus playing out again in a slightly softer form in Indiana Jones in the 80s, and again, a slumdog millionaire in the New York Times with its very one-sided reporting. All this stuff is going on. Now, what has happened in India is actually, I think, even more uh, alarming. Uh, there was a fairly strong, quote-unquote, secular uh, element in the Indian Anglophone media, you know, which sort of viewed the Hindu culture with some suspicion and uh, the, the Hindu nationalist or the BJP and the political part with a lot of opposition. And that was the case right from the 80s, I would say till the early 2000s or so. But my informal sense is till around 2014, perhaps, the Indian media was not virulently Hindu on the same scale. Uh, as as was the case here. To give you a simple example, I mean, I could get published in India. I mean, I had a column in the Indian Express, the Hindu used to publish me in the Times of India. Um, you know, my books were, and well, some of them still are published by well-known mainstream publishers in India. But what started to happen, I think, post-2014, was this sudden normalization of extreme Hindu hatred and falsehood as factual reporting, as you know, factual, acceptable discourse on Hinduism. 
And that is very alarming. And they've completely shut down um, anything like positive self-representations of Hinduism. And I think that's happened for a couple of reasons. One might be political, economic. We don't know what's mm -hmm. going on behind the scenes, you know, and how the media as a global big business operates. Uh, but it's also happening, I think, within the institutions of journalism in a generational level. So what we're what we're noticing more and more now with Indian journalists, for example, is how clueless they are about the world around them. Okay, so you have Indian journalists, for example, uh, who talk about ordinary, uh, harmless Hindu parts of Indian life, not even Hindu life. Sometimes Indian life, like rasam, yeah. you know, or, or rasam soup, like my American friends call it. Uh, I, I am amazed, you know, if you remember the scroll, an Indian website had an article on how Rasam is a site of Brahmanism, you know. And oh, yes. Oh, I remember that. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, so you have the New York Times, of course, here you're doing a piece on the South. So you have this whole weird thing where just normal, you know, apolitical, spiritual, cultural Hinduism is suddenly, you know, turned into a monster. And some of it is happening. I think because of a generational change where you have this sort of a, a deracinated Indian Anglophone elite, which has no idea. You know, the other example uh, you, you might recall, there was a professor in India who wrote on Facebook about the quote unquote angry Hanuman uh, yes. of yes. culture, right? Yes. So now it's interesting if you take that as a case study. Okay, so uh, if you recall in India a couple of years ago, a lot of taxi drivers, bus drivers, started auto drivers started putting this, you know, nice, intense, brooding red picture of Hanuman. It was a decal, yeah. Yeah, it was like a, yeah, decal. They would put it on the window, and I mean, Hanuman didn't look particularly malicious, frankly. I mean, he looked a little intense and brooding, uh, but nothing like it wasn't really a pop culture Hanuman where he's looking like a, you know, a robot or something. I mean, it was still. I thought it was within the range of Hindu sensibilities, but anyway, yeah. and it starts to become very popular. Then the media does a interview with him, where you know they give this this catchy phrase, "Angry Hanuman." Yeah. Now the artist, uh, I forget his name. I think he was from Mangalore. He clearly said, "Look, my Hanuman is not angry. I call it attitude." So you know, attitude is a popular phrase in, among young Indians. It started yeah. from the Kanalvi days. And what he means is this is Hanuman who's sort of, you know, confident or assertive, but not necessarily aggressive or angry. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. They just, I mean, the media completely decided to label this as angry Hanuman. Okay. Um, anyway, so now angry Hanuman becomes a thing and, and people are talking about it. And then this professor in Delhi talks about how this angry Hanuman is such a disturbing phenomenon, considering how, and this is a quote, Hanuman used to be a cute dimwit. <laughs> I mean, what is a cute dimwit Hanuman? I mean, what world have these people grown up in? Right. And now, it gets even worse. Now, this professor also goes on to say um, that Hanuman was, yeah, one, this quote-unquote cute dimwit who accidentally set Lanka on fire with his tail. <laughs> so, I mean, how can you grow up in a world where you have no clue how, you know, the rest of your people from, and not just your family, but even your servants, you know, the and the people in the slums, the common people of India, 
what is in their minds when they think of Hanumanji, you know, yeah. and in his episodes, whether you want to think it as think of it as real or fiction or something in between. Uh, the fact is, there's a broad, even though there may be many different versions of the Ramayana and Hanuman, etc. There is a broad sense of, you know, things he did and didn't do. And for a professor to kind of just, you know, decide that, yeah, this is it. Jump off a this is not incredible jump like Hanuman going to Sri Lanka. This is, this is par for the course now with Hindu phobia. You recall the American professor, Audrey Trushke. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. He sounds off one day about how, you know, see, uh, something like Rama is a quote-unquote chauvinist pig. And and then then she's and then even Robert Goldman, you know, who's considered one of the authorities on Ramayana in the West, you know, he says, you know, that's not an accurate translation. There's no such thing at all. Uh, but nonetheless, so I think this is what has gone on now. You know, no, uh, innocuous things are demonized as being violent, and then Hindu sensibilities are completely trashed by the small clique of completely clueless and at times, you know, virulently hateful uh, ivory tower personalities. So I think that is the very, very scary proto-genocidal terrain we are, on, we are living with today. Absolutely. Uh, Rachid, yeah. Oh, yeah. A couple of comments. Uh, you know, so this is something a professor relate to, you know, what you said in your rearming Hinduism book, you know, uh, this regards Hanuman, you know, can really view his disposition in that, you know, little decal as being more Raudra rather than Krodha, right? So he's not an angry Hanuman. He's just in his, ter you know, more terrific form, which is something that is, uh, you know, there in, in our text, if any of these scholars, you know, who talk about Hanuman are actually willing to read them. Uh, you know, there's definitely another thing, Iran, and I think you touched upon it, right, is, is this whole disposition in the media of these, uh, I think as you called it, uh, deracinated Anglophone elite. Now, I fortunately, unfortunately, kind of grew up with some of them, so I was in Dehradun, I went to the Dune School, and as you know, right, a lot of Indian journalism is dominated by people from there. So growing up, right, uh, in high school, um, that was me. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of these views were just something that I had uh, uh, internalized. And it's really coming to America where I kind of went through, you could say, a quasi-identity crisis in, in the sense that I started questioning, well, who am I, right? And, and it was really the color line that I experienced uh, when I came to America. In fact, I'd say this, for the first six months of my freshman year, I wasn't conscious of color. In, uh, in my second semester of my freshman year, I actually became conscious of color as a thing. And now it's, it's sort of, you know, become part of my psyche now living in America. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, maybe at some time man, I can write a little blog post on that experience. But, but yeah, you know, this, this, uh, this uh, internalized self-hatred that a lot of the elite in India have is very disturbing. I have these regular conversations with a lot of my friends and colleagues who I grew up with who have, you know, who had seen me when I was growing up. And now they look at me as someone who's not not really like a devout Hindu, but someone who actually practices the culture and in actually being a Hindu, and they will equate that with uh, Hindutva, right? Just like you said, so anything that we do, oh, you know, because you come from such a family or because you're Hindu, so anything you're doing is Hindutva, while someone like Audrey Trotsky, even though she comes from a family of evangelical priests, but she's got no hidden agenda. I have, an, I have an agenda, you have an agenda, Mukunda has an agenda, but Audrey does not have an agenda. And that to me is just shocking, that, that, that whole, the attitude that people have. And just to jump off that real quick, I mean, uh, you recall, Professor, when the Shabri Malay issue was coming up, right? 
it, it was recast as an issue of feminism as opposed to understanding that it has something to do with feminism or menstruation per se, because there's other temples across India. Like the mass media, whenever like TM Krishna would write an article or this person would write an article, it would never talk about the nuanced view of the hundreds of temples, thousands of temples in India. Only a few here and there have restrictions about who can come in, who can go out. And Shabri Malay was one of them, right? So instead of saying it as this is all about like a particular temple and their, their rituals and their their needs of that deity, it's this is Hinduism. It's misogynism for Hinduism. We're anti-feminist. We're this, that, and and it was blown up not only in the Indian media but all over the West. And and so I mean, like, I like, like, how, how, so what is it that when you when you do your research and studies on this, how do you approach? these kind of issues and and like and and how do you make it so that people can try to understand the, the inherent bias that exists because I mean, a lot of times you can because we're so covered in it like it's sometimes difficult to see we're actually sitting in the muck we we sometimes are like oh no we, we, that's just the way it is as opposed to saying we're in the muck indeed yeah i i you know, it, there are times um, and, when I end up writing every day, you know, either an article or, yeah. or a post or at least a tweet, uh, because this is this has been incessant. And there are times when, you know, I, I almost just decide, you know, I can't be doing this every day because, you know, it's one of the big disappointments, I think, has been the absence within the Hindu community of uh, any kind of an organized awareness or, or a professional response to all of this. I mean, it's very, I mean, all that's been happening is those of us who are doing it, you know, uh, out of a sense of seva, I guess. Yeah. Podcasts or talks and, you know, blogs and things like that. And, uh, and the other problem is there's so much noise, you know, even within our community, there's a lot of anger, which just, you know, goes all in all directions on the internet. And, um, you know, it's it's almost like uh, every single Hindu has been presented the bill for essentially a political party's, um, you know, actions or even their alleged actions in India. Right. And um, and then obviously there is this gap between Hindus around the world and, and this party, which supposedly speaks in its name, you know. So I think, you know, the last few years have become extremely um, you know, troubling because uh, on the one hand, you have this political churn going on in India, which um, has turned into an excuse for, a, you know, a cultural extinction program, it looks like. And, and the challenge, I think, is that many people from our own families and, you know, peer circles and professions uh, have failed to uh, understand or empathize with what we, the pain that many of us are feeling right now. And and like, uh, you know, Rajit was saying, you know, I mean, it, it, most Indian elites today grew up in this whole Dune school, you know, St. Stephen's <laughs> uh, kind of atmosphere. And I think what has happened is, uh, you know, they have accepted sort of this consumer pill of what it means to be a good human being, namely secular, et cetera, et cetera, uh, without any critical thinking. Mm. That, that what that, that they 
basically because that they are turning into the monster that they read about in Arundhati Roy's books, for example. <laughs> I mean, they are embodying capitalist power in the US. They are, you know, uh, taking forward these big Western media corporations like Netflix or New York Times or whatever. And, you know, they're ramming that into the minds and lives of people in India who like poor, you know, uh, people and like most people, you know, uh, have no, uh, don't know how to argue or fight back. So they go and go to these schools, they interna internalize all this propaganda. So it's, it's a, I think, a really complex and intense, you know, uh, generational, epistemic, cultural, social, political battle, you know, that's going on. And underlying all of this is, of course, the environmental battle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what what is going on with the amount of plastic everywhere, with the amount of uh, deforestation, tree cutting going on in India? And, uh, you know, when is Hinduism going to come back as a force to just put this idea back? You know, uh, I know put the fear of God may not be a very Hindu expression. No, it's but, not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... it's but, but I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, people would hesitate before cutting a tree because some granny from the village or, or the slum would come and say, no, no, that that is that goddess's tree you cut it. But it wasn't a fear, right? That was more of a respect. There's this inherent, yeah. like, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's this, in, in, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm at a loss of words, but it really is a respect for things. Like, you, like no one fears... People don't kick a shivalingam or a, a deity out of fear. You do it out of respect because it, 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 people know that the 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 murti is not going to attack you or nothing's going to happen. But they know that there's karma, right? The whole idea of karma is the regulating the boundary of of, of our of our network. Is this if I'm harming this living creature, like a tree or whatever? There should be a good reason where I can deal with the karmic consequence of it as opposed to just cutting it down so some corporation can build another factory, right? Exactly. I, I think it's like, you know, the, the whole traditional episteme of, of reverence, love for nature, you know, all these things, the love for the gods. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, that has been violently erased you know, by the uh, whole, you know, post-colonial education by the media and so on. And there's nothing really to replace it because the Indian elites who... Uh, who own, you know, essentially the, all the machinery of consciousness, you know, the media and schools and colleges and everything. I mean, they don't have a vision, you know. So it's like, um, you know, they, they're just repeating what is being said over here, you know, in the U.S. Yeah. context. And they're just perpetuating this bizarre lie again that, you know, Hindus are like the KKK of India. I mean, just think of the word lynching, for example, you know, and trying to make this equation that Muslims are the blacks of India. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't see blacks ruling America for 1,000 years or yeah. trying to force them. I mean, the, the equivalence is just not there. So I, I think, yeah, we do have a, a, a huge communication crisis, ironically, at a time when there's more and more communication available. Yeah, Rajit? Uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, a Professor, I'm happy brought this whole, uh, you know, uh, discussion about the environment and nature. Uh, you know, this is something I feel strongly about too, right? You know, you, you give that anecdote about the granny coming and saying, hey, don't cut down a tree. So I come from Uttarakhand, right? We're the land of the Chipko movement. You know, that's that's where it started. 
And, and so for us, you know, growing up, I mean, the respect that we have for our mountains, the Himalayas, for the forests, I mean, it was just something deeply ingrained. You know, it's, it's, it's almost a very animistic culture, but that's what allowed us to, you know, preserve the land to such a level that people want to visit today. And one thing that, you know, breaks my heart is that, you know, I see all these news reports coming out of pictures of, uh, because of, you know, increased tourism from the plains, uh, you know, the mountains are becoming very dirty. The rivers, even at their source now, are becoming dirty, you know, until very recently, the Ganga was clean all the way up to Rishikesh and Hartwad. And now, unfortunately, you know, people are coming and they're not respecting the, the beliefs of the locals and the culture of the locals and not treating the mountains and, uh, you know, the, the forest with respect. And, uh, you know, that's leading to whole lot of destruction and it's very sad that anytime we you know express this love and reverence for nature as something divine and pure it's belittled by you know the anglophone elite saying that oh this is a more primitive culture you know this is just nature worship and i say you know what if, if you're being a true rationalist there this abstract notions of god you know that's something that we can't relate to with our senses but to have this reverence for the quote-unquote divinity in the nature around us something we can view and interact with to me, it should be the most rational form of religion, you know, if, uh, if uh, 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 anything at all. So I, I, I do think a renewed focus on those, uh, the more natural aspects of Indian and Hindu culture would lead to a much better situation in India. And I think, as you said in your book, it would just be better for the world uh, as a whole. So I just want to, I, I know we don't have that much time. So I, I want to touch on a few more topics before we talk about um, your, your books. Um, so we recently had in May the largest election in human history, right, in India, in which you had you know almost a billion people actually coming out to vote and and putting into power, you know what is the BJP government, but has been deemed fascist, nationalist, uh, like um, like a, a terrible thing for the the universe. Uh, as if like Hiranyakashipu or Ravana himself has taken, you know, like a seat in, in India. And and my concern is, so my question to you is, you I'm sure you've been following, and I've been following your, your posts and your tweets. There is clearly an agenda sitting out here in the back, right? I, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying it's any of that. But there's a clear agenda in the way they approach even the idea of nationalism within India. And idea of like even the BJP. Could you like speak to that as as to what like what the how this election was viewed both internally within India and, and by the outside outside of India and like the problems that you see in the representation that the maybe the Hindutva has had in, in, on the whole. Yeah, I I mean the the coverage was incredibly one-sided, narrow, and yeah, seemingly agenda driven. Um, and I mean, very simply, we hardly saw any Western publications uh, presenting any arguments contradicting their sort of dominance. That this was again a choice between uh, the survival of India as a secular republic where, you know, all people could live peacefully together, uh, as envisioned by the founding fathers, quote unquote, Nehru and his uh, children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. Uh, I'm being ironic there because you probably noticed a new Washington Post headline, India's founding dynasty, uh, a reference to Rahul Gandhi. So, but that was the assumption, essentially that, you know, India was as this, you know, secular republic by Nehru and, and the Congress party. And Modi is a part of this, 
part of this Hindu extremist uh, Wahhabi, Hindu Wahhabi thing. And, uh, you know, India is not going to survive. India is going to turn into uh, that uh, show I have not seen yet, uh, Leila or whatever, where there's going to be, you know, this obsession, Aryan purity. And so, I mean, it was a very bizarre paradigm that was being peddled, you know, the last few months. And very little uh, debate allowed at a New York Times or NPR, etc., on other things that are going on. I mean, they simply didn't publish any views, you know, as simple as that. Now, what exactly were they trying to say and what were the, uh, you know, journalistic uh, shortcomings? You know, it's very, very simple. I've written several pieces in a medium on this. Uh, but one of the things that we find, you know, which is really weird uh, is how hard they tried to dehumanize Hindus. So they would always be the Hindu mob, the Hindu mob or descriptions of an angry mob and the mob the language they use for hindus it's very interesting it's very similar to uh, the kind of language that old colonizers used you know for the native americans you know the mob howling screaming it's it's like one huge entity you know it has no individual characteristics and by contrast many reports in washington post npr etc begin with one frail muslim mentioned by name right and and there was a phrase like his watch drops to a whisper that I actually found in two or three newspapers. So mm. it's like you know they've got this uh, performance going, you know. So where you know they want to talk about the Muslim they write about as an individual human being who's so scared, you know, his voice drops to a whisper, and then the rest of India is just one amorphous mob, and and it affected you know. The, in very, very, uh, uh, you know, deep ways. For example, when the NPR had a report on the changing of uh, Allahabad's name, mm. you know, nowhere did they mention that there was a Hindu existence and a Hindu name before it was called Allahabad. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like, you know, this South Asia paradigm, which was, you know, floated by a group of academics in 2016 in the textbook debate, uh, got you know, printed in the media in, in all these months. Now, as going to the elections itself, uh, well, I mean, I think uh, clearly the people in India don't believe this kind of propaganda and they see Modi as a, I think, a, a good and capable person. And obviously different people see him in different ways. Um, I think uh, urban middle classes, some of them probably see him as a more secular, you know, uh, person who's a devout personal Hindu, but more secular in his operations, and that's mm -hmm. fine. Uh, you know, maybe some of the youth, small town youth, etc., they think of him as a Hindu warrior. I don't know. So this politics is a big theater, uh, and I know it again since my mom used to be in politics, but and different constituencies probably see, see him in different ways. But I think the real concern now is essentially, and this is where I think being a critical scholar helps, because the question I have to ask now is, what is the nature of power going forward in India? Okay, so there was a big fight where the old systems of power were sort of shaken down. And this completely new group of people, you know, namely the RSS, you know, to put right. it very bluntly, you know, has one political power. So what are they going to do next? 
you know, and they're driven, I think, you know, not by exclusivist Hindu extremism, that's a myth, as most people know, uh, but they are driven by their own ideology, which is not Hindu theocracy either, it's their own sense of service and patriotism and things like that. And I think presently many of them are well-intentioned, but do they have the frameworks for dealing with the nature of post-colonial power? Sure. Or as somebody tweeted today, uh, are they just going to end up becoming the, the old regime in another form? You know, where I, you have this idealized version of what the Congress probably war, wanted to be in the 40s and 50s, you know, but not as corrupt and somewhat patriotic, uh, you know, and, and they do that for a few years. Uh, but meantime, the discourse on Hinduism, the de- legitimization of Hindu existence itself has gone into, you know, catastrophic proportions. Sure. And this government simply does not seem to know what to do, you know, and that's that's a fact, you know, the last five years they didn't know what to do. And I mean, some might say it's too soon to say, but I mean, I, I think they have internalized, you know, uh, the present lay of the land and uh, where, uh, you know, they're essentially selling you know, take Sabri Mala, for example, mm. you know, so they have internalized this idea that Hinduism is in need of reform, right, for example. Uh, another example, two years ago, or was it last year, they had that big gathering, you know, in Chicago, it was supposed to be called, I think, a gathering for Hindu unity or something. Mm. So many of the political figures here were, you know, associated with it, I guess. Uh, and then the web for that gathering, uh, you know, it was all about celebrating how successful and why in the, okay, in the US, you mean? In the US, yeah. Okay, I mean, you want to say that if it makes you feel good, say it. But then there was nothing on the website on the agenda about Hindu phobia, about what Hindus face as a result of racism. Whereas they do have stuff about how Hinduism needs to reform. So I think this dominant paradigm has become internalized even by the people who are supposed to be the resistance, or at least one part of the resistance. Sure. So I think you know the political landscape in India is very, very uh, convoluted right now, and and I think we have to start thinking about a more detached uh, Hindu uh, movement, you know, which can't be reduced to just pol politics. Sure. Uh, Rachit, I'm sure you have some some comments or questions. Oh, well, yeah, just, you know, uh, just just a question in this case. So since we're on the topic of elections, uh, Professor, if I recall correctly, you wrote Rear Rearming Hinduism in the backdrop of the 2014 elections. And now that Modi's gotten re-elected, you know, are you thinking of maybe like a rearming Hinduism redux, you know, because also uh, there's something you mentioned earlier that about now, you know, since you've written that book, you your mind is open to like so many other, uh, so, so much great work happening by other Indologists. So is, is this something maybe you want to revisit and, you know, talk about the path forward? And, and if not, then maybe we could kind of segue into talking about some of the other books. Yeah, actually, both both the questions were segued into my books, uh, this one and the so, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. So, Riyaming Hinduism, uh, I wrote it in a very strange way because I had an appendectomy in 2040 and I wrote it in three, four weeks while I was recovering. Um, I think the immediate pro provocation, in a sense, was, you know, the uh, Wendy Doniger controversy. Yes. 
And then, of course, uh, you know, the Modi election took place, and I felt very optimistic uh, because, you know, from 2002 till about 2013, I had very little understanding of who Modi was and what the RSS was, frankly. I mean, I think I was just sort of uh, assuming whatever they said in, in the Western media. And it's only around 2013, 14 when I started listening, but I suddenly realized this guy's Gandhian and uh, uh, Swaraj kind of sensibility and all that. Um, but anyway, so I think, um, I mean, I do have a couple of ideas I'm working on right now. One is an academic uh, you know, study of uh, Hindu depictions, particularly here in the U.S. media, because as you know, I mean, Hindu phobia is also becoming an issue in the U.S. elections. Absolutely. With uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi, yeah. The attacks on Tulsi, and uh, so I, I think uh, you know, it's going to be very important to talk more about Hindu phobia in the U.S. in the next couple of years. Um, and I don't know. I mean, honestly. An issue, a book on Hindu politics in India is not something I feel like doing right now. Right. <laughs> I mean, my optimism has been uh, somewhat knocked out uh, in the last few. Uh, but I, I, I am probably, I, I've been thinking about a lot of different creative ideas, you know, in terms of uh, uh, Hinduism and intergenerational uh, communication. Um, you know, so something about, uh, you know, that brings in all this wonderful books I've been reading by Vishwa and others the last few years that brings it to a broader audience. Uh, so th those are, I think, you know, two of the Hin Hinduism nonfiction projects, you know, I have going right now. Um, and of course, the other big thing on my table is, uh, and it just goes back to, you know, Dehradun and Uttarakhand. Uh, is, the question of nature and for me the Kishkinda Chronicles, you know, the right. series on Hanuman um, was and is about nature, you know, I mean, and, and nature at breaking point. So, so, so let's talk about uh, actually, so what, what was the inspiration for you to write, uh, the, first of all, the larger Kishkinda Chronicles and then the Saraswati's Intelligence? All right, so, um, I got this idea around 2013 or so, and mm. I wanted to sort of write this epic reimagining of uh, Hanuman. Mm. And uh, uh, and I must uh, share that certainly a big part of the inspiration was Amish's, you know, Shiva trilogy. Sure. Uh, yeah, because what what I found fascinating, you know, it's actually very interesting. Uh, I, I read the. Immortals of Miluha, I think, in 2011 or 12. Yeah. And then I also heard Amish speaking, I think, at the Jaipur Lit Fest or some of the Lit Fest, and I was looking at how people in the audience were responding to him. And then in 2013, when uh, Modi's, uh, you know, prime minister run was sort of becoming more and more mainstream, yeah. I was noticing that people were... <laughs> In all these common boats, yeah, I started noticing that there was this kind of a convergence where people seem to be talking about uh, Amish's books and also Modi at the same time. <laughs> it is very uncanny, but so in a way, it was Amish's fans who first taught me that Modiji was not a fascist. That's <laughs> strange, but then suddenly this idea started occurring to me, and then of course I started listening to his speeches, and then later I read Jean Dayal and. Conrad, and so I got a, I think, a better picture. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, the 
the first inspiration was this was uh, uh, Amish's Shiva books. Yeah. And basically, what I found interesting was how you could tell your own story. You know, it didn't have to be just another version of the Ramayana or or the Mahabharata. You could tell a completely different story, where you had fun with it. You know, you had an adventure story, but then you kind of still reconstructed the moral universe in a way that was consistent with the basic expectations and sensibilities you have. Sure. So, for example, with Hanuman, you know, you couldn't have Hanuman as a, you know, uh, you know, as a playboy. Simple as that. Yeah. You know, in my book, you know, Hanuman would still be treated with respect about being a brahmachari and you know all, yeah. all those things. So, so I with you know those kind of things, I began thinking about this book in in uh, 2013, and my father. Uh, encouraged me a great deal. But my father was a professor of zoology, and you know I remember he, him telling me about Jwalapuram, this village uh, uh, in Andhra Pradesh, uh, you know where uh, the toba, the ash from the toba volcano in 7000 right. BC had, had settled there. And uh, so all these things started making me think about prehistory. You know, so I started reading a little bit about uh, you know old Dubai and Africa and you know, I went and got a whole lot of nice picture books with, you know, lots of uh, cavemen paintings and dinosaur paintings. And, you yeah. Know. And uh, and then the other angle that was also relevant was, I think, uh, Hampi. You know, uh, Hampi is also on the cover of Riyami Hinduism. Uh, in 20, no, sorry, in 2005, I visited Hampi for the first time with my students. And, um, you know, it was actually a really life-changing experience. And, um, I think along with all the other things which made me want to write about Hinduism, I think actually seeing Hampi uh, was a profoundly transformative uh, experience. And in my, yeah. I should also mention nine days in Kishkinda, uh, a short uh, travel memoir I last year, uh, you know, just about going back to Hampi again, this time with my uh, wife and son. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to chant this mantra, you know, to Yantrodharika Hanuman. Uh, because I found a recording in 2014, my father passed away. I'm sorry. In 2017, I, I, I found a recording of my father chanting that mantra. So end of that year, we went to went back to Hampi to that particular temple, and I, because I wanted to hear my father's voice chanting that in that temple. Oh, that's and, very nice. Yeah, I mean, so I think yeah. So there is this not just a broader but a deeper thing going on with Hanuman. Uh, as a context, you know, to to the Kishkinda Chronicles. Uh, yeah, so I'm going back and forth a little bit here, uh, but you know, so yeah, 2013, um, I, I wrote Saraswati's Intelligence, and uh, I wrote part one, and I really enjoyed writing it. You know, I yeah. wrote it quickly, and it was the first time I was writing action, um, which was completely new to me. And uh, anyway, so I, I had fun writing it then. I was going to write part two and three, but then a lot of things changed in my life. You know, my father's passing, and then I wrote Riyaming Hinduism. Then uh, so three, and then I had this some this voice issue. So like literally three, four years passed, and Saraswati's intelligence came out, and readers were asking me when part two is coming, and uh, I was really stuck because you know I had to write part two, and uh, well, four years had passed. So anyway, so finally last year, 2018, 
I did write part two, and it turned out very well. So as a reader of Saraswati's Intelligence, I think you'll enjoy uh, this one. Uh, so the, the part two, uh, hopefully by the end of this year. Okay. And Westland will be publishing it as well. And part two okay. is called... Saraswati's uh, Intelligence here, I think. Uh, I have a really good cover. I, I love the cover of it. Or it's in my other book. It's, it's probably in my other bookshelf. But I have it, and I love the cover. It's fantastic. I don't know who you got to do the art, but it looks amazing. Yeah, so the artist was, uh, um, I think, one of Western's cover artists, and it was a great vision he had. You know, he had this kind of a, almost like a, I think, a East Asian Hanuman, you know? Yeah. Like sleek look, and, and uh, you know, uh, very, very lean, and almost manga type, and... Uh, yeah, but at the same time, the landscape and everything was very primordial. Um, yeah, so yeah, the, so book two is uh, called the, the sorry the Fire Keepers of Jwalapuram. So I wanted to honor uh, Jwalapuram and my father and Professor Kori Setar, you know, the so, archaeologist. So I, I know you didn't put any timetable on the in the like the chronology of the book, right? So it, I from what I thought, and this is you can totally tell me I was wrong. I thought this was probably like something like 20, 25,000 BCE kind of like story, like when human civilization was starting to kind of rise along with, you know, the, like the, the, the monkey civilization and all these, and, and that's where I thought, but maybe you're writing for a time well before that. <laughs> well, actually, you're, you're not too far off the mark, you know, basically, um, uh, I mean, I mean, because it's fiction, you know, we do yeah. take a lot of uh, but if I had to think of a date, I would probably think 70,000 BC. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because there is that volcano uh, angle that also connects to the story. Sure. I mean, I don't want you to spoil anything because it's uh, as part of the <laughs> part yeah, of reading yeah. the book. Yeah. So there's a no, but I, I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, I really liked. Um, well, I mean, I think you did a great job in, in especially describing like sceneries. Like I loved how you described the jungles and like and kind of give very. Uh, even the way you describe the 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 animals within the forest and the relationships was actually very um it's very nice and it's actually i mean obviously it's a lot of anthropomorph uh, anthropomorphizing them but nonetheless it's it's just really it's a great way to build that relationship i think that that I, from what i what i assume you're going to do with the story is like eventually connected to the ramayana because he had all this period of time to where you don't know hanuman's origin outside of like his birth and then like his whatever there's so much else that you filled in in between, and and like the relationships between the various vanadas was actually kind of interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I I think uh, you know the different le levels at which uh, the uh, writing fiction of this kind operates. You know, there yeah. is At the core of it, I think there is a sort of a, maybe a moral intellectual vision that inevitably happens. Yes. Uh, but it, because when you're also an academic and you write nonfiction. Uh, but you want to uh, express that naturally, you know, without getting, you know, pedantic about it. Yeah. Um, and there's, um, you know, the landscapes, the nature, and of course the characters. So I think the the three four characters, you know, uh, just express themselves very nicely. You know, like yeah. particularly the relationship of Sugriva to his mother and to his brother. Yeah. You know, because of the link conflict there, uh, and then of course the rishis. Yes. Uh, and and Vaishnavi, you know, uh, sort of a 
very skilled and brave, um, you know, queen. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think book, book two, you know, you'll definitely enjoy reading it because it, it picks up where uh, it left off with the cliffhanger. You, I mean, you did have that, I mean, am I allowed to say, like, uh, part of the story or no? Or would you not rather me not? Uh, we'll, uh, okay, we'll have, uh, your, your choice. I mean, can you edit it out if it's too revealing? <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's a really cool thing you did with one of the characters in our mind on how they meet uh, Avali. That was really interesting. Because, uh, I mean, that's... So, anyways, I'll just say that. I, I enjoyed that scene. I really enjoyed that that interaction. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then you have a new book coming out, aside from the Kishkinda series, too, right? You have another book you're writing? Uh, yeah, so actually, uh, the writing book, is that what you want to do? Yes. No, I, yes. I thought you have another book outside of the part two to Kishkinda. You actually have another book you're also working on? Uh, well, uh, the, the Hindu phobia book. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the, that will be, uh, actually, let me just say one more thing about Kishkinda, sorry. Sure, you can just, sure. If you can just put it there. This sort of goes back to Rachid's question as well, you know, and, and, and Uttarakhand. Uh, so, you know, while my interest, you know, was inspired by Amish and, you know, telling the story about Hanuman, yeah. I think the core idea that I really wanted to explore, you know, in the Kishkinda Chronicles uh, was to, this, what you mentioned of, of, of speciesism. Yeah. yeah of uh, what today we would call human-animal relations, you know. And I was really trying to think of a time when uh, this kind of a mental uh, barrier between humans and non-humans did not exist, mm. you know, because I think much of uh, Hindu thought and culture uh, expresses, you know, such a sensibility, you know, where you think, you know, the same, these are all GVs, you know, and you yeah. don't have the sort of a dominion idea that, you know, trees and animals are just objects put there for you to, you know, consume. Um, so, you know, I think that's why this whole idea of Paramadharma, uh, which of course is Ahimsa, yeah, yeah. Uh, is a big part of the book. And uh, and then book two and three, you know, I think I explore it some more, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how it all unfolds. Sure. Uh, so one, one interesting teaser I, I can share from book two is, so in book two, there's going to be a competing idea being imposed on Kishkinda, and that's called Pragati Dharma. Pragati Dharma. So, Pragati Dharma, progress. So we're oh. going to kind of a clash between the old ideology of Paramadharma and this new ascendant ideology of Pragati Dharma. Interesting. And, yeah, so I think that's hopefully uh, going to go to the heart of everyone who's seen what's happened to you know, the mountains of Uttarakhand or even the boulders of Hyderabad. Yeah. And the rivers and the trees. Um, yeah, because it's catastrophic again, you know, what's going on. And, um, you know, hopefully these words will encourage people to save whatever little is left. Sure. Uh, uh, that sounds amazing. I I'm excited to read part two and, and see where you go with the story on this and, and ideas. Um, Rajat, do you have anything? Uh, nothing. You know, I have not read this series, but I eagerly await the uh, release of the second part because I, I love to binge books. So I'd, I'd rather just read it all in a stretch. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to wait until later this year when it's out. Thank that's it. Thank you. Um, and then so the Hindu phobia book you're also working on, and that's uh, when do you plan on having that come out? 
Yeah, so the Hindophobia book is, um, I had a two, couple of versions I uh, wrote a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, but now I've gone back to the uh, writing table on that because I'm trying to make it more uh, data-based. Um, and, you know, at the moment I'm just collecting data, like, you know, what's all the things that New York Times has said about Hindus or The Guardian. Sure. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it might take a year or so, I think, before I manage to put it all together because there's just so much uh, yeah. <laughs> nobody in my field has done until now. Um, but I, I do want to try and, you know, uh, finish it by next year because, again, and this would be, appropriate uh, because we began our conversation with the American dream and yeah, uh, right. Berkeley Hare Krishna temple. Um, I think, uh, you know, we're already seeing this very fascinating thing happening with Tulsi's, uh, you know, run. Right. And so I, I think, uh, you know, people here, the, a lot of the people who call themselves progressives and liberals in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, particularly in academia, really need to own up to the fact that Hinduophobia too is a form of racism. Sure. And if Absolutely. you're against racism, if you oppose the way Obama was insulted and smeared, you know, you also need to understand, you know, what, what's happening to Tulsi. You know, whether you support her or not, uh, you need to understand what's happening to Tulsi, what's happening to Hindus in this country, you know. And, and, and I think... And, I mean, to put it very. Go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, to put it very simply, uh, you know, uh, I was reading this uh, little book which called uh, what's it called? Something about white people. Dear white people. Oh. Right. So I I think we need we need a kind of a dear white people or dear dear Hindu phobes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, guide. Um, you know, for white uh, people particularly, and also for some other brown people, we count among our own friends and family. Right. Because, you know, a very weird thing has happened. You know, you see this whole phenomenon now of uh, the word Hindu making it okay for white people to be racist with you, at least in academia, you know. Right. And it's a very, very weird thing, you know, uh, whether it's Audrey Trosh or uh, you know, the editor of Mother Jones magazine, you know, who was, uh, who wrote on Twitter about how, quote unquote, as she put it, these Brahmin. Yes, uh, you know, this which, is shocking. Yeah, <laughs> these, these Brahmin come to Silicon Valley, you know, using affirmative action, and then they deny it to people in India. You remember that? It's it was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it just, as someone who works in even technology, you know, totally denigrates all the hard work Indians have had to put in to rise up. I mean, I had, I had uncles in the tech industry in the 80s who actually faced the bamboo ceiling, you know, because of the racism that was there, but in spite of the hard work, you know, rose to the higher echelons of management. And luckily today they've broken through and, you know, Microsoft and Google is, is it actually led by Indians. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing. But if you look at the backgrounds of all these people, they weren't from very rich, powerful families in India. They were just middle-class families and just worked really hard. And in spite of all the affirmative action in India, they got into the top schools because they were brilliant. I mean, if, if anything, you know, we should be uh, congratulating them on their success. I mean, but the, and the thing I think the Mother Jones article didn't also understand is they left India for that reason, too. Yeah. They left India because it's incredibly difficult for a Brahmin or upper caste, whatever you want to call it, with good good credentials to, to do much, right? Outside of uh, 
I mean, now it's changed because of a lot more when they opened up the markets, it became much more uh, private industry was was quick to pick up that talent. But before in like the 80s and 70s and 60s, that's why everyone came to the US. My parents came, my dad, my father came here. One of the reasons is because it's difficult as a brand in with uh, a, a good education to get a job. You'll, you'll be given to someone else that cast hierarchy. Yeah, see, I think what, what has happened is, uh, again, it's all of this kind of extreme racism, which, you know, yeah. which, which white people not do against any people of color, where they suddenly start pretending that uh, if you're quote unquote upper caste, yeah. then you're, you're somehow white, so we can, you know, uh, try and civilizing you, which is bullshit. You know, yeah, and 100% bullshit. All, yeah. So uh, now this here's a very interesting thing. I think this is the core of the lie that you know is starting to you know get unpacked now. Um, and the most important work here again is Vishwad Luri's book, The Nasa, because this yeah. entire discourse on somehow upper caste Hindus being like white supremacists or you know uh, the KKK of India and all that, it's actually 19th century German anti-semitism yeah yes. it's, it's 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 nazi racism being put on to brown people by so-called progressives like the editor of mother jones uh, magazine right so you know and the wonderful phrase that vishwa has in his book uh, vishwa enjoy the co-author is that the image he says you know the basically the images of the brahmin priests that the first europeans encountered in their writings mm -hmm. uh, and now most of these people had never even been to India, right? So they were just making up as they were translating the Vedas and the Indian yeah. The image they constructed was essentially what Vishwa calls caricatures of rabbis drawn in brown chalk. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had uh, Joy Deep on, uh, one of our first podcasts was with Joy Deep, and we spent actually quite a bit of time with Vishwa and Joy Deep when they were out in Los Angeles um for an event so we we, we spent quite a few, i mean a lot talking about this stuff because it is it's a brilliant work it's so meticulously uh researched and argued and and to be honest like i i, I mean i couldn't find many other indologists being able to contend with it outside of saying you're hindutva you're hindutva <laughs> you're hindu and, and you're just like this is how the the level of discourse it is the same arguments that used to come in when michael witzel and stephen farmer used to fight with uh, uh, Vishal Agarwal and a few other people and just say, you're, you're, you're just a rabid Hindu. Instead of dealing with arguments, their response is, it's basically, we'll cut you off by calling you a Hindu because obviously Hindus are terrible people and we're, we're backward and we, we're, we're tribal as opposed to you know, these enlightened Western thinkers who have you know, been enlightened and moved beyond you know, tribal nature. You know? And this yeah. is a frustrating part. Indeed, I, I think, you know, uh, it's essentially, this is like the last frontier of racism and, uh, you know, Tulsi's run is bringing all these races out, out of the woodwork. And uh, it's becoming clear that, I mean, they just um, hate anybody who's Hindu. I mean, and they're fanatical and in any right. other context, you know, their racism would have been called out. And did I you, think, by the way, uh, Professor, did you, I think you posted on your page when that, I think it was New York Times or Washington Post that did that article on about, uh, Tulsi Gubbard's like religious background and they're calling it like this cult and 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 how they would approach it and and, and I don't think they would have ever done this to to anybody else like even when when uh, 
uh, Mitt Romney came up, people weren't writing these massive op-eds about like Mormonism and how like it, it is, you know, this kind of religion, whatever. But they write it about Tulsi's like she she was she was basically kind of the ISKCON lineage, right? She was she's basically like they you know uh, Hare Krishna, and but they kind of found this particular guru and they kind of write this nonsense. And I'm just like, why does that matter what her guru was? She's not necessarily following that. She might be doing her own version of of what as Hindus we can do whatever the hell we want. To be honest, right, right. Yeah, I think that I think that was in the New York Magazine and. Uh... I mean, that was such a skillful piece of propaganda. I, I actually saw some of Tulsi's campaign people saying, oh, it wasn't banned. And I said, no, please read my article because yeah. this is a very skilled propagandist at work over here who, uh, again, a, a, a white uh, professor of creative writing who is pretending to sort of um, separate, you know, Tulsi from Hinduism, you know, and it was just so crafty. And, you know, in, the, in my piece in Medium, I unpacked it very, very you know, uh, carefully, uh, but it's essentially like you said, they wouldn't do this to, um, you know, the uh, Congresswoman Omar, they wouldn't do it to Mitt Romney, you know, they wouldn't do it to Obama being Kenyan. I mean, the right thing did it to Obama, right? Yeah. Telling him a Kenyan and a Muslim, right? That's right. But and, and how come here? Yeah, so I mean, so you just rabid racism on the so called, you know, left in, in America. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, and 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 it has one name, and that name is Hinduphobia. Yeah, I, I agree, uh, Rajat. Yeah, I, I'm sure you have something because. Oh, yeah, uh, no, uh, Professor, I'm I'm very happy that you're calling it out for what it is. I mean, it is indeed uh, Hinduphobia, and uh, I, I think, and I'm very glad you brought up uh, Vishwa and Joydeep's work because it has its roots in the 19th century and essentially propagated up until now, where even Indians as ourselves, right, we view Brahmins as this priestly class like the Catholic priests back in the day as they were envisioned, or the rabbis as they were envisioned by the Protestants, and how we've, you know, kind of uh, clamped down on people and their ability to express themselves freely. And it's, it's, it's very sad. And, and, and I noticed that the same kind of criticism isn't leveled at other people. And I'm not saying it should. I think it's wrong to level it at Hindus and anybody else, whether they're Muslims. But a similar argument could be made, and I'm just saying this to show how absurd it is, that, oh, you know what, let's single out the so-called Sayyids in the Muslim community, rather than India and elsewhere, because they claim descent from the Prophet, and thus they've dominated the rest of the community, and the rest of the community is essentially slaves to them. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, trying to pull that same argument, which would be ridiculous. But somehow, in the case of Hindus, uh, you know, it just gets a free pass. And as you rightly pointed out, it's really the left wing which is doing it more so than even the folks on the right. Uh, it's it's a really odd and weird situation. And um, I'm very happy that you, with uh, your writings, especially on Medium, uh, are actually shining a light on this. And the funny thing, uh, Professor, is, you know, like, I think in our political spectrum in this country, we'd be considered liberal and uh, or left-leaning in terms of our policies and and ideas of what are like, I'm all for, you know, gay rights, transgender rights, all this stuff, right? And, but the moment we start talking about like Brahminism or Hinduism or whatever, we're automatically labeled like we're a fascist. And the, and the crazy thing is we're, we're trying to be nuanced in our in our conversation, but because we don't blank, blanketly see any sort of, because we don't say that's a hegemony in that situation, we're not, we're, we're a fascist, we're nationalist. And, and the difficulty is, I think the problem across everywhere right now, globally, this is the inability for people to have conversations with each other um, without calling names and without kind of degrading each other's 
individuality into some sort of mass mass position, right? Like I'm an individual. Talk to me as an individual, not like what you think a Hindu would be like. I, I think this is one of the big problems we have. Yeah, and actually that allows me a, a convenient segue into my most recent publication, an ebook I wrote last year. Okay. Briefly earlier, and that is writing across a cracked word. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I have that on my Kindle. I have not got to it yet, though. <laughs> yeah, again, it was basically, you know, an attempt to overcome this polarization that you're talking about, you know, because, uh, you know, it's like people are in different realities, you know, uh, and there's a dominant paradigm, which is very well ensconced in, in the media and in academia. And then we have all these citizen bloggers and, you know, uh, podcasters and writers who are trying to change it, but then, you know, it's, it's become so entrenched. So uh, the book is uh, uh, writing across a cracked world, Hindu representation and the logic of narrative. And, you know, the inspiration for that was a bit of spring cleaning I did last year and I discovered I have a lot of books on writing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I just realized, you know, we, we are paying a lot of attention to history, to philosophy, uh, but we also need to understand that writing uh, is a huge, huge investment, you know, of time, skill, and talent. Uh, so Stephen King's book on writing, Ray Badbury's uh, Zen and the Art of Writing. Uh, so I, I wanted to write some some kind of a writing for, you know, essentially the Hindu citizenry, particularly those of a more progressive liberal uh, bent, like most of us, uh, you know, to really express ourselves in a way that speaks. Uh, the truth and right. also uh, resists, you know, the labeling because the present labeling has been has not helped us. And you know, one of the points I make in this book is about how a lot of Hindus, uh, you know, inadvertently call them, particularly in India. I don't think it's the case in the diaspora. They call themselves right wing. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing right wing about their positions except that, you know, they're just calling themselves that because they dislike the left. You know. <laughs> left have the moral high ground when it's full of racists, you know, like this uh, Mother Jones person and yeah. other, you know, I mean, you're not, you're not the left, you're not the progressives, you know, most, most, I think average Hindus tend to be more liberal. Yeah. And, and uh, so let, let's uh, say, it, say, it, you know, proud, you know, we are Hindu and we are liberal and now we are loved. You yeah. Know? So, you know, it's, it's funny that, that you say a part of the, the thing is uh, we, we started Wretched, Wretched Life started Mirror Media because Rajat actually brought up this great idea. This was probably like a decade ago. Uh, about <laughs> writing a book about um, what was it, Rajat? Um, it was based on a, a book that you you read. Well, I, I, there were a couple of books we talked about, but uh, I, I think one of them was uh, you know fifty great books. I, I think right. Uh, the were no, like, the, hey, let's speak. No, it's about the cultural terms. Oh uh, yes. Uh, so it's not quite. So it's about cultural literacy. Yeah, writing a book on you know creating a cultural literacy amongst Indians, whether in India and the diaspora, because they don't have it. You know, right. whenever we talk about these great philosophers or scientists from the past, I mean, it's some a name that they've heard here and there. But you know, if there's any richly written piece, uh, you know, e even like your writings, uh, a lot of uh, people today would actually have trouble understanding it and they'll probably need some sort of dictionary and have to Google Kishkinda. Well, what is Kishkinda? I mean, some of them wouldn't even know what Kishkinda refers to. So, you know, really having a book that allows uh, people from uh, Indian origin or, or even foreign origin who are interested in Indic Hindu culture uh, to allow them to come up to speed and become culturally literate. And that's what we thought that, you know, a book like this needs to be written. So <laughs> that's, 
yeah, and that's where the origins of actually us doing the podcast came in was the idea that we want to be able to bring people like you on and have create an, uh, an ecosystem, an eco space in which where people become more literate and I mean, in this sense, more I guess auditory or visual too. It, it, with the I, with Indian Hindu thinkers, not only of the past but in this day and age, who are working on issues like you are, like Vishwa is, so that they're not just sitting back there in the spotlight. I mean, in the darkness, and for some academic to write about later, 50 years down the line, we should be promoting our own public intellectuals, like like you might be your Sam Harris's and your and your Jordan Petersons and these kind of people that everyone knows about. We have just as amazing thinkers that need to be brought to the forefront and have a platform to talk and engage. And that's what we want to do is kind of like, this is why we, we love having you on. We would love to have you back on again, maybe like with a couple other people we could have like a, and I know something I was discussing with Nitin Sridhar is I would love to do what's, what we used to do in our tradition, do the debates, to bring back like the Purva Paksha plus the, the, your Siddhanta and kind of talk with people and, and really discuss Indic ideas in, in unique ways. So. Yeah, a debate between me and Kushal on left wing and right wing would be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be. I think another enriching discussion would be to have you along with Vishwar or Joydi, you know, because talking about modern representation versus the 18th century and how they kind of relate to each other. Maybe you guys could do some uh, collaborative work <laughs> at some point. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because, uh, you know, I, in decoding Hindu-phobia, I think uh, really what I want to show is, you know, the continuity in how present-day media discourses have not changed very much from you know, the time that, you know, Vishwa and Joydeep have documented. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this. And I think this idea of a cultural literacy, you know, dictionary or a handbook uh, or, or even a list on your website, you know, yeah. I think this is uh, very, very ha helpful. Uh, because, again, you know, this it's all of this is about uh, generational, intergenerational uh, communication. And it's so fragile right now, you know. It's it so is. Fragile. And one thing that you brought up earlier that I wanted to pick up was, um, I, I'm sure you grew up on like N.T. Ramanayal as Krishna, Rama, like Ramanjaniyadam, Venkatesha Mahatyama, all this stuff, right? Like, um, I, I remember I grew up on that stuff. So it, it's so difficult for me to like, like, I still think one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Ramanjaniyadam with N.T. NT Ramanayal. And then there's also, you know, like in the Tamil cinema, there'd be like, you know, Tirvadi Aral, Tirumal Perume and Karnan. You know, these great movies um, that talk about our our traditions, our histories, our our unique storytelling, right? And I feel like the, that's one of the things in this generation, the new generation, they don't have anymore, right? The, 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 this is something that connected my me to like my grandfather or my, you know, like the, it was a, the traditional way where there's where before TVs came, they probably heard this on radios or or plays around their their villages and stuff and. And now we're we were talking the same language, but in this day and age, like I, you know, I don't have kids, but like I wouldn't know if my kids would even at that point or any other Hindu kids I see would have any sense of what these stories are or these like literary forms and, uh, and even um, acting forms were are. And I think that's something that's really missing in Bollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood, whatever you want to call it. There's multiple different genres of of, of films. Yeah, I wanted to show you one thing. The book is right here. 
So this was actually my uh, first novel. Oh, yeah, your first book. That's right. Yeah, The Mythologist. Uh, and Penguin India Publishers. And uh, yeah, so this was, you know, inspired by, you know, the kind of movies you mentioned. Yeah. And memories of, uh, you know, Madras in the 1970s, you know, the great studios of Kudambakam. And, uh, and, and what, what you said is very true because I think uh, what's happened is, on the one hand, again, there's a media explosion now in India of superhero gods, you know, like Chota Beam and all these cartoons. Yes. But what's happening is it's, it's also getting diluted. Right? Because yes. when you see gods more and more as merchandise and superheroes, uh, and then you see academia saying all, all stories are the same, you know, talk about interpretive fundamentalism there. Right. Uh, eventually what happens is, you know, the kids don't know uh, how to balance all these things, you know. In, in their own minds. And eventually, you know, they might just think, oh, your grandfather had a fundamentalist view of it. And, but, you know, these are all just stories. I mean, I was in a lit fest in Bangalore a few years ago where the, you know, the uh, moderator who was not moderate at all, you know, was trying to get people in, to say things like uh, Rama and Krishna are just fictional characters. You was know? this the one with uh, like, you and uh, Arvind Neelakantan? Was that the Sorry. one where? Uh, was this the interview or the panel with uh, you? You were on stage with Arvind Neelakantan, right? The the uh, the guy who wrote like uh, um, I guess uh, Anand. Huh? Anand. Anand, yeah, yeah, Anand Neelakantan. That was yeah, that was in Jaipur Lit Fest. Uh, with okay. Anand. Um, I thought that yeah, that was okay. I mean, you know, we had our own conversation. This was a uh, I think a year or two after that. Uh, this was in Bangalore Lit Fest, and I was on the panel. Uh, Kavita Kane, who's also like a who writes uh, mythological fiction mainly about women and this guy was kind of trying to push kavita to say like you know rama and gods are you know fiction. and i almost felt like saying you know look okay harry potter may be fiction but other temples to harry potter you yeah. know, do, you know? Yeah. so this, this is the kind of intellectual you know again coming back to the, the disconnect from the rest of here but uh, i think to conclude on a hopeful note i think yeah. uh, you know, what, what you said, you know, our stories are the best thing we have for us. I mean, we've lost the forest, we've lost our mountains. Um, you know, let's not lose our stories and our words, our language, our sensibility. And so whether it's writing or podcasting, uh, I think the, the most important and urgent thing we need to do is, uh, you know, really restoring uh, clarity in perception and in communication. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, Professor uh, Jewelry, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to speak to us. Um, uh, Rachit, do you have anything else? Uh, no, nothing. Professor Jewelry, thank you so much. I know we took up a little too much of your time, but I, I thought this was a wonderful conversation, and I hope to have many more conversations like this in the future. Yeah, so if you're ever down in Los Angeles, uh, let us know. We'll definitely meet up with you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I look forward to doing a live live chat with you from LA next time. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Namaskar. Namaste. <laughs>